Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This evening, we bring you the third program in a series of three, Inspiration from the Past. All three programs feature people who were wrongly incarcerated, but survived the ordeal through the means of ample courage, spirit and determination. This evening, we turn our attention to Frongok, the prison camp in a remote part of Wales, which housed Irish prisoners post-1916 Rising. A former distillery, it was initially used as a prison camp for German prisoners of war during World War I. Now it would detain those who had taken part in the 1916 Rising, including some who hadn't and some who weren't even aware of it. Despite the harsh conditions here, these prisoners were left to their own devices, managing to turn the tables on their captors and develop what was later referred to as a university of revolution. The War of Independence, three years later, would now be a different battle to that of the Rising. To find out about Frongok, I head towards the Michael Collins Centre near Clonakilty, founded over 20 years ago by Tim Crowley and his wife Dolores. Tim has a particular and obvious interest in Frongok. After all, his grandfather and granduncle were detained here. Good evening and welcome to Where the Road Takes Me. Stand up in the presence of the Commandant. I said, stand up. So why would I be doing that? Because I've just given you an order. But I'm not in your army. Is that right? That is, Lieutenant. We'll give him a fool's pardon for now. As it is your first day at Rongok Prison Camp, I will make some introductions and lay down a few ground rules just to make sure there is no misunderstanding between us. The man on my left is Lieutenant Burns, my second in command, who will look after your day and daily needs. But 
Overall, I am in charge. And my name is Commandant Frederick Arthur Hagen Lambert. And as far as I am concerned, there is one rule that no prisoner will be allowed to break whilst at Frongot camp. And that rule, gentlemen, is there will be no escape. None. Not even an attempt. Because if there is, that man will be filled full of buckshot and shot dead. An excerpt from Kieran McGee's play Frongok 1916, The Phoenix Rises. Well, Frongok was an ideal location for a prison camp, remote and 20 miles from the nearest big town. But it's situated in a very scenic area of Wales, close to Snowdonia, a mountainous region in northwest Wales, and now a national park of 823 square miles since 1951. Tim Crowley has already been to Frongok on two occasions. Frongok is a little village which um, is near the town of Bella, and it's about it's about a, a north from Hollyhead, basically in North Wales. Um, it's located in a strong Welsh nationalist area. Most of the people in in the Frongok area speak Welsh; it's their first language. And uh, of course, in 1916, it was a more or less a, a, a disused distillery. The distillery itself was founded about 1890 by a local landlord called Lloyd Price. He was a bit of a character. He was. He, he reckoned that um, why is Ireland why was Ireland famous for its whiskey and Scotland famous for its whiskey and Welsh had no whiskey so he decided to set up a, a distillery in, in Frongok and it was an ideal position it was close to a railway line the actual site and also next to the Tuerden River as well but when they were making the whiskey with most whiskies, as it gets older the whiskey it gets better but in the case of the Frongok whiskey it deteriorated the older the, the whiskey got which was quite unusual but the, the distillery itself lasted uh, I suppose for about 10 years and then about 1900s uh, the, the actual distillery closed down so they used it then to house German prisoners up until 1916 when the problem arose with the Easter Rising for them. That's right. World War One began in 1914 and the British had a lot of German prisoners so they, they decided this would be an ideal location, a remote part of Wales for a prison camp and then they, they were there from 1914 to 1916 and then the Rising happened in Dublin in, in April and suddenly now the British um, had thousands of Irish prisoners rebel prisoners on their hands so they decided to move the German prisoners out of Frongok and to send in the Irish. There were a few German prisoners left behind, nine or ten, but these were very sick men. They were dying from TB. They remained there. That's right. When the Irish got there, there was uh, still a number of German prisoners left, and the actual priest, uh, the, for the first uh, few weeks while the Irish were there, the, the chaplain was, was Polish, because he'd been the, the chaplain for the German prisoners. There was a lot of signs around the camp as well in German uh, from the, the time that the Germans were there. Uh, there was no Irish prisoners died in the camp, but there was a number of uh, German prisoners died while they were there, and they were buried in a local graveyard, but their bodies were exhumed and put into a big German prisoner of war cemetery down near London in later years. Frongok became known as a university of revolution. Here, the Irish were basically left to their own devices. In fact, many who had entered here with just vague Republican sympathies now left as staunch Republicans. So the question has to be asked as to how a country with vast military experience had allowed more than 1,800 rebels gather together under one roof. Yeah, it, 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 at that time, if the, the British put those prisoners into small jails in small groups in Ireland and in Britain, it, the, the effect at Frongok obviously would never have happened. But by putting all over 1,800 men from all every county in Ireland and, and from, play, from Britain and some, one or two from the United States and so on into this big camp, well, then uh, you just created a network. And, uh, of course, they had plenty of time in their hands and they began to discuss, well, you know, why did the rising fail in Dublin and what are we going to do the next time we'll fight the British for freedom and terms like 
guerrilla warfare were discussed and setting up a, an intelligence system to rival the British one. They, they recognised, of course, as well, the Royal Irish Constabulary and the Dublin Metropolitan Police. They were controlling Ireland for the British and ideas about destroying the police force began to be discussed as well. Now, uh, we can say that every detail of what the IRA got involved in during the War of Independence were was discussed uh, in Frangok, but the initial ideas began to be floated there. There were something like 1,800 Irish prisoners there. The majority were from Dublin, but uh, obviously a good representative number from West Cork as well. So talk to me a little bit about them. Well, there was uh, there was 92 from Cork, roughly, from the county of Cork. They would have been um, my own grandfather's company, the lawyer company of the volunteers. There was 19 of them marched to Inchigila on Easter Sunday, 1916, to pick up the casement rifles, which, of course, never came in. And of those 19, well, there was nine of them ended up afterwards in Franga. Now, they would have been um, probably around the same number from Balnadee, from the Balnadee Company, and there was six or seven from Bandon, people from Skibbereen, Bantry, and, and so on. And um, some of those men were released early on in the time, but more of the, the hardcore or the more dangerous as far as the British were concerned. Uh, they came in with most of the prisoners in early June 1916, but the last of the rebel prisoners were released at Christmas 1916. So some of the men only spent a month there, more of them spent six months there. Was it true, and I suppose it was, that a lot of young fellas spent time there who had nothing whatsoever to do with the Easter Rising? In fact, I think Colin said that a good percentage of them weren't aware of the Rising, so they were all just taken up in the one sweep. That's right. Well, a small number of the prisoners there had, as you say, had absolutely nothing to do with the Rising. They were picked up above in Dublin, wandering along the street and arrested and then put into prison. Then, of course, there was the likes of my grandfather and granduncle who marched to Inchigila, and if those guns came in, of course, they would have been involved in, in, in action down here. But basically as such didn't do an awful lot and then you had the likes of Michael Collins of course who was fighting above in Dublin and uh, more men uh, who fought in Dublin who had shot British soldiers and so on so it varied from people as you say that were not involved at all up to the people who were right in the thick of it as part in the Battle of Crossbarry, Flower Begley from Bandon became known as the Piper of Crossbarry. But on Easter Sunday, 1916, Flower's son Dermot says that his father was one of those who marched to McCroom. In 1914, uh, he became interested in the, the um, nationalist movement and um, himself and Pat DeWire formed the Bandon Company of the uh, Volunteers. Now, the, prior to that, the Bandon volunteers were part of the Bandon Spittle Company, as was my father, and they marched to uh, McCroom on Easter Sunday when the proposed rising was supposed to take place and didn't. Uh, as you know, it only happened in Dublin and one or two other scattered areas in the country. For his part in the march to McCroom, Flor Bagley was rounded up and sent to Frongock. In the past, he had been nurturing thoughts of starting a pipe band in Bandon. Pipe bands have, of course, strong military connections. In Frongok, Begley made many new friends from all over the country, and it was here, Dermot says, that the seeds for his father's band were sown. Actually, Frongok was the um, academy of the IRA, if you like, um, because they, they were allowed to have lectures and whatnot, and, and um, I could never understand why, how, how the, the 
British prisoner of war camp would allow this. But anyway, they did. And all the lads in turn there, when they came back, they knew a hell of a lot more about arms and everything else um, when they went back to their own parishes and companies. But um, there was a Joe, Joe McCann, or up country, and he raised a lot of money. He got subscriptions from um, a lot of those who had been interned with him. And in 1917, the band was formed. Of course, he had already um, had got permission from the, the company to form a band. And that band was later given to, on loan, to the um, FCA. And the instruments were given on loan to the FCA. And when they were disbanded later on, they played in band and for years afterwards. The FCA band played and attended sessions and everything else. But um, the instruments, of course, some of them would be beyond use and the, they would have had to get some new ones. But the big bass drum is above in Collins Barracks, the original one. And the side drums were in Tralee. I know that they were given down there uh, eventually. The pipes. Now, they had five sets of pipes originally, I think, one being my father's uh, own pipes. And they were war pipes. He's one. They only had two drones instead of the normal three. And they were the ones that later he played in um, Cross Barry to such effect by all accounts. Tommy Keller always said that um, the pipes that day were worth 20 rifles. When the Easter Rising was over, hundreds of Irish volunteers were rounded up and arrested. Tim Crowley says that all were taken to Sackville Street in Dublin, now O'Connell Street, and to the front of the Rotunda Hospital. This is where the selection process for Fronguk, in earnest, began. They were kept there overnight, actually. And if they wanted to go to the toilets, they did it where they stood. They were like sardines inside in a tin uh, crushed together. And the following morning, then, police, detectives from the Dublin Metropolitan Police, RIC from parts of the country, Royal Irish Constabulary detectives, uh, they would have been British military officers as well. They came in then and they started picking out the leaders. And uh, there was one British uh, officer called Lee Wilson. He actually uh, pulled out Tom Clark. And he was stripped and humiliated in front of the nurses looking out the windows of the Rotunda Hospital. And the likes of Michael Collins, Liam Tobin and other men standing back watching this, they started were learning serious lessons from all of this. Because they could see that the, the police were like grey crows coming in and picking out the leaders. And they came up uh, with the idea later that if um, the Irish had any hope of forcing the British to the negotiating table, in any conflict they would have to neutralise the police force, blind and deafen the British intelligence system. So uh, really... Frangok itself is referred to as the University of Revolution, but I think from once the rising began, Michael Collins and a lot of other people began learning serious lessons and they would change warfare afterwards to suit their, their needs. Yeah, because I think you said to me earlier on that uh, Collins said he would follow James Connolly anywhere, but he would have serious doubts about following Patrick Pearce. Yeah, well, in, in October of 1916 in Frangach, Michael Collins wrote a, a letter to a friend, and in that letter he said that. He had tremendous admiration for the um, the leaders of 1916, and he couldn't but have respect for any man who was prepared to stand in front of a firing squad, which is what happened uh, what happened to them. But he, he, he recognised there was serious mistakes made as well, and he, and he did pass that comment that he'd have followed um, James Connolly through the gates of hell but he'd have had to think about following um, Padraig Pierce. and he also mentioned in that piece as well about uh, MacDiarmada, Sean MacDiarmada that there would, there would never be a man like him again so um, that was interesting again it shows that Collins and a lot, a lot of other leaders, uh, future leaders at the time were, were learning serious lessons throughout, throughout uh, 1916. This evening on Where the Road Takes Me we take an in-depth look at the University of Revolution Part 2 will follow the break shortly right here on C103.
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My grandfather and the other lads from the lawyer company, they were um, sent up to Richmond Barracks uh, and they were there on the morning of the 12th of May 1916 and that's just down the street from Kilmainham Jail and they heard the volley which later they discovered was the one that shot, uh, that, that killed um, James Connolly sitting on a chair because he couldn't stand up for the, for the firing squad because of his wounds and of course there was 250 prisoners including the lawyer lads put onto a cattle boat um, and, on the north wall in Dublin they were down in this very dark smelly hole in the ship going over to uh, cross to Britain and some of the men were getting seasick because of the conditions and so on and they started rearranging boxes inside in the holes to make uh, things more comfortable for themselves and as they were moving one box to one side the lid slipped off and there was a dead British soldier inside who had died in the fighting in Dublin two weeks before so they were actually put into the hold of the ship of the British dead and you can imagine what that was like. Tim Crowley, whose grandfather and granduncle were imprisoned in Frangoch after the 1916 Easter Rising. Welcome back to part two of Where the Road Takes Me. Well, Tim Crowley is proprietor of the Michael Collins Centre at Castleview, just off the Clonakilty to Timmeleague Road. The centre, founded by Tim and his wife Dolores, was opened 17 years ago. This evening on the programme, along with Tim, we take a look at the setup, the conditions and the characters that made up Frongok a makeshift place of imprisonment in Wales. Firstly, for German POWs up to 1916, and then for more than 1,800 Irishmen who were rounded up after the Easter Rising. Frangach village is quite close to Snowdonia National Park. It's probably in the, on the boundary of the park. And um, not too far away from the village, you can drive up through the mountains. And it's, it would remind you of Killarney. Uh, absolutely spectacular scenery and rivers and lakes and all of that. And of course, it was an ideal spot then for um, for a prison camp, uh, a remote area. But as we mentioned, it was a, it was a disused distillery. Uh, it was made up of um, probably about 20 acres. There, there was uh, South Camp, which was the old distillery. 
and that comprised of old grain lofts and different big stone buildings and a large um, brick chimney and then there was a road then uh, just to the north of, of, of where the distillery was and there was a field across the road and that's where the, the British actually erected 32 wooden huts so that became North Camp and each of those huts would hold about um, probably 20 uh, prisoners now so you had the uh, South Camp the old distillery North Camp the wooden huts a road in between and then the south of the old distillery of the field and that was uh, used by the prisoners for recreation for playing games and all of that so guess what they called it Croke Park and they had sports events there and Gaelic football matches etc they had uh, in, in July 1916 they actually played an All-Ireland final in Fra- Croke Park in Frangoch prison camp and uh, the um, it was Loudre playing Kerry and the captain of the Kerry team was a prisoner called Dick Fitzgerald who before that had been a great Kerry footballer now I think when he was in Frangoch in 1916 he had gone over his prime but he was still a, a hell of a, a player but Kerry be, beat Loud by by a point anyway in that um, in that game and then later on in, in that summer in Frangoch they had a sports uh, day in Croke Park in Frangoch as well and of course the, the British authorities allowed the prisoners to play football and uh, get involved with athletics but they wouldn't allow them to play hurling because the hurlies could be used as a weapon so in the athletics meeting anyway that famous sports day uh, it was the famous Sean Hales from Balnadee near Bandon won the, the hammer throwing event he actually had been a Munster champion in hammer throwing before he got involved with the volunteers and uh, Michael Collins won the 100 yards dash and there's a story told that he was actually coming up second as they were running up to the line and at the last second he passed the, the man who was winning and he looked back at the other man and he hissed at him and he said you can't run your whore and that's been recorded in a number of books including um, Frank O'Connor's The Big Fella and, and so on. Now, Jim Walsh, who was the OC of the Lawyer Company, we know from newspaper reports of the time, he played in the vin- in the veterans football game in, in, in that field. And of course, the famous Dick Fitzgerald, who we mentioned there, if, um, he was the captain of the Kerry team in Frangoch. He um, played there and he died himself, unfortunately, in 19, I think 1927 in Killarney, repairing the roof of the, of the courthouse there. He fell off and was killed. And of course, Fitzgerald Park in Killarney is actually called after Dick Fitzgerald conditions there were very very poor and the food there was absolutely atrocious I mean you have what you describe as a menu but of course they, they didn't actually get a menu. Well going through the books on Frangoch and the various witness statements and so on I, I've just put it for fun in many ways but in, in other ways it kind of makes it easier to understand what it was like. I made out this menu and uh, they wouldn't have had a menu obviously but they used to have their breakfast at half past seven in the morning the prisoners and they were given a bucket of tea and everyone dipped their enamel mug of course into that. There was a, a quarter of a loaf of inferior or black bread per prisoner and they, on top of that they were given uh, to spread tintrate margarine this is what the, the prisoners described it as the dinner then was usually at half past twelve and there was um, the part in the menu for the dinner there was soup of doubtful quality which was descri- the way it was described as well there was eight ounces of boiled frozen New Zealand or Australian meat and that eight ounces included the fat and the bones now sometimes they got mutton other times they got beef and other times they got horse meat and then there was a half a pound of bad bread and then there was some beans and small uh, small potatoes the vegetable ration amounted to two ounces per prisoner and of course scurvy was a big problem as a result of that now the actual tea uh, in the evening at five o'clock was the same as the breakfast now the only difference in the week was on Fridays they got um, frozen or salted herrings which had the guts still in them and they were actually inedible they could never eat them the only thing that saved the prisoners in Frangoch from starvation was all the packages that kept coming in from their supporters and relatives with goodies only for that they would have been uh, and probably deaths in, in the prison camp at that time
here from every county in Ireland. Dublin, Meath, Cork, Antrim. All of us here together. So we utilize that. We work it to our advantage. We form a grand plan. We create networks, lines of communication. We build our army in here. And then when we get out, we disperse them into every county in Ireland and sow the seeds of rebellion. Another excerpt from Kieran McGee's play, Frangoch, 1916, The Phoenix Rises. Well, Tim Crowley made his second trip to Frangoch. It was a significant date, 100 years after the final prisoners were released and returned back home to Ireland. On this occasion, Tim did not come back empty-handed. In his possession were two artefacts from the prison, which are on display at the Michael Collins Centre in Castleview, just outside of Clonakilty. There was 14 of us in a group, relatives of the Lark, um, volunteers, and also a grandnephew of, of Michael Collins, Michael O'Mahony, and Ty Crowley, who would be a grandnephew of Harry Bowen. So we had a, a, a widespread group, if you like. But anyway, we had a great weekend over there. We were a bit nervous about travelling over there that time of the year, but the ferry journey over and back was like being on a pond. If you were travelling in July, you couldn't have got a better trip. So, so it, was, it was wonderful to drive through the um, Snowdonia National Park and to see the lights for Christmas and the windows of the houses. It was magical, really. But anyway, we, we had um, a couple of ceremonies over there and uh, when we were leaving, the locals said to us that um, they had two of the original benches, folding wooden benches from the prison camp and they asked me would I be interested in taking on loan one of the benches for the Michael Collins Centre here in Castleview. So uh, first of all, I was very reluctant to take the bench but they insisted and we have it, as you can see here on display. And um, it's a folding bench dated from about 1904 and um, who knows, Michael Collins or Richard Mulcahy or any of the lads might have had their backsides up on top of that. The second piece then is a tin whistle or a flute and you believe this is possibly belonged to one of the guards? Well I suppose we can't be 100% sure but the man that gave it to, to, to me in Frangoch on loan for the museum here uh, in the back garden of his house actually runs uh, where the, the perimeter fence for the prison camp was in 1916 and actually the guards guarding and sentry duty around the camp would have walked over what's now his garden. So he found that um, fife or flute in, in his garden about 10 years ago. Now it, it doesn't look to be an Irish flute, it looks more to be possibly Scottish, so may well have been dropped by one of the, the, the guards as they were guarding the camp back in 1916, but it comes from the prison site uh, at Frangoch. What's the attitude towards local people over now to what's beside them, the, the history that's attached to their area? Well I think there's there's two sort of views over there among the locals the local Welsh people who would be the natives if you like who are Welsh speakers they're pretty strong, the people we met anyway, strong Welsh nationalists and, and they're very proud of the connection between uh, that, that their their village Frangoch played in, in our history and it was a major um, role but then there are others in the locality who came in to live there you know from England and other parts of the UK and they would have a slightly different view and actually in, nine, in 2002 the locals put up a little memorial on the side of the main road next to where the camp used to be and if about a week after that one night was actually, there was actually graffiti put on it so that'll tell you the locals would have a, a big pride in, in that history but some other people in the locality might have a slightly different um, attitude
With 1,800 men under one roof in a prison, there were bound to be characters, and Frangok wasn't found wanting in this department. One prominent character was Tom Daly from Dublin, who had worked on the docks and was a veteran of the Dublin lockout. Tom, for very good reason, was known as the Rat Catcher of Frangok. Well, you know, there, there was an awful lot of uh, conflict between the prison authorities and the prisoners. And there was a whole series of, of uh, sort of arguments uh, that uh, developed during the stay of the Irish prisoners there. But um, one of the, the early um, incidents involved the, the British authorities in Frangok decided to remove a, a hut from outside of the camp compound into the compound and they were going to get the prisoners to do all the work. So involved uh, among the prisoners was the famous William O'Brien, the great trade unionist who was born actually in Ballygortin RIC station here in, in, near, in between Clannacilty and Dunmanway and uh, then there was another character there as well he was Tom Daly now both of those men were very much tied up with trade unions in Dublin before this time so they organised the strike then about the removal of the hut in Frangok Tom Daly a very interesting character as you said he, he was involved in the Dublin lockout a few years before he was actually brought to court uh, on the charge of manslaughter but I, I think he got, got off he, there was some incident during the lockout he was brought up in front of a judge because of that uh, but anyway in, in Frangok then, because he was used to working in the docks in Dublin and handling, dealing with rats and so on, he became the rat catcher in the camp. And of course, Frangok internment camp, in particular South, uh, the South camp, former distillery, uh, was old grain lofts and all of that, it was infested with rats. And there are so many stories of prisoners asleep at night and rats running up under the sheets or under their blanket. There was no sheets running up under their blankets. There was one man who was actually bitten on the cheek by a rat. So this man was busy trying to keep the, the Tom Daly the rats under control. But anyway, he came up with this idea of organising what was later known as Tom Daly Circus. So what he would do, he would get a whole lot of stools, a bit like the one we have here now, arrange them around in a circle, a bit like a, a circus ring. The prisoners would sit up on them and the, the, his comrades and stand behind. And then he would march into the middle of the circle and out of a bag he would bring this, uh, pull this enormous rat which he would have kept specially for, for this performance and now what he would do then he would get the rat and he would put the rat under his shirt and the rat would be wriggling uh, on his skin under his shirt and then after a while he would pull out the rat and seemingly Tom Daly had Dracula like teeth and he would actually bite the rat in the back of the neck and kill the rat and then he would rip off his shirt and his body would be covered with rat bites. Now of course this, there was cheering and maybe men getting sick and so on as they were watching all of this going on the other thing he used to do then, he would walk around inside the perimeter fence of the camp and he would take out a rat from inside of his coat and he would start showing the rat to the guard dogs that the British sentries would have. And of course, that would drive the dogs mad. The, the, the sentries thought he was just completely nuts, but he was one hell of a character, but always known as the, the rat catcher of Rangok. Also in the camp was another daily, Paddy Daly from Kerry, who later became one of Michael Collins's famous Twelve Apostles. Daly later fought as an officer in Kerry on the Free State side during the Civil War. One of the conflicts between the prisoners and the authorities involved the um, the authorities come up with the, idea, with the idea of making the prisoners working in local farms and they, they wanted them to set up a garden in the inside in the camp. So of course they picked out prisoners including Paddy Daly to start digging up the garden and Paddy and his comrades pretended that they were from Dublin City and they never worked a shovel or a pike in their life. So some of the officers went down and showed the prisoners of course how to work a shovel and a pike but they were only making aegis of them so they finally discovered that the, the, what was up the, um, the prison guards and the, the Paddy Daly was put on bread and water in a separate section of the camp afterwards. On this evening's edition of Where the Road Takes Me, we bring you the story of Frangok, home to more than 1,800 Irish rebels during 1916. 
Coming up in part three, we look at some more famous inmates of this Welsh prison, including James Stritch, whose notoriety goes back to the Manchester Martyrs. And there's also Joe O'Reilly from Bantry, one of Collins's right-hand men. So join me again for part three in a few short moments. Welcome back again, on this occasion to part three, the final part of Where the Road Takes Me this Sunday evening. I'm in the Michael Collins Centre in Castleview near Clonakilty, and along with proprietor Tim Crowley, we're looking at the story of Frongoch, the prison camp in Wales, home to more than 1,800 Irish rebels during 1916 and after the Easter Rising. Well, possibly the oldest prisoner in Frongoch may have been Dubliner James Stritch. 49 years previously, on September 18, 1867, Stritch was one of those who held up a prison van besieged by Fenians on the streets of Manchester. This resulted in the escape of two Fenian prisoners, but the unintentional killing of a police constable. While the escape plan was a success, shortly afterwards, William Allen, Michael Larkin and Michael O'Brien would be hanged and would find their place in history as the Manchester Martyrs. Fenians surrounded the prison van and they were trying to free through two prisoners out of the prison van. One of them was a Timothy DC from Clannacilty. These were Fenian prisoners. Now, there was a, a guard called Brett when looking out. He was inside in the van with the prisoners and he was looking out through the keyhole and one of the Fenians shot through the keyhole trying to break the lock, not realising the guard was inside and they actually killed the, the, the prison guard. Afterwards, the, the Fenians escaped with, the, with their free prisoners but there was uh, other Irish men arrested in Manchester and of course, Alan Larkin and O'Brien were later hanged for the, the killing of that prison guard and they became afterwards known as the Manchester Martyrs. And of course, um, Philip Allen came from Bandon, another West Cork connection. Of course, the, the men holding the horses while they were freeing the prisoners oh, out yeah. of the van that day was, was James Stritch, who was uh, afterwards in, in Frangoch. Yeah. In, in Frangoch, for a short time, uh, Tomás McCurtain, who would later become the Lord Mayor of Cork and was shot by the police in Cork during the War of Independence. The man who replaced him as Lord Mayor was Terence McSweeney, and of course he was in Frangoch as well. He died uh, on hunger strike uh, on the 26th of October uh, 1920 in Brixton Prison in England. Uh, so the, the, those two uh, later Lord Mayors of Cork were in Frangoch for a while. You had... Um, Richard Mulcahy was there. He would replace Michael Collins as um, Commander-in-Chief of the uh, National Army when Collins died in 1922. He afterwards became leader of uh, Fine Gael and so on. And then you had um, artists and actors and so on in Frangoch, various types of tradesmen as well. One of the actors that was there was actually Arthur Shields. And of course, if uh, listeners are familiar with the film The Quiet Man, he actually played the, um, the, the, the Protestant minister or director in that film. And his brother was William Shields, who also starred in in the quiet man but he was more famously known as Barry Fitzgerald so Barry Fitzgerald's brother was in Frangoch now of course you had Joe O'Reilly from Bantry in Frangoch he would become Michael Collins's um, assistant sidekick great friend during the War of Independence and he got a big welcome at Christmas 1916 when he came back to Bantry
country having been released from Frangok and then an awful lot of Michael Collins's 12 Apostles hit squad during the War of Independence were there the likes of Michael MacDonald Liam Tobin Jim Slattery Paddy Daly we mentioned already Charlie Dalton Bill Stapleton and of course Gerardo Sullivan from Skibbereen who was um, an adjutant in the IRA during the War of Independence he was in Frangok as well and, and a great friend of Michael Collins and towards the end of Michael Collins's life of course he was engaged to Kitty Kiernan and they had actually planned a double wedding because Gerardo Sullivan was engaged to Maud Kiernan Kitty's sister and there's a famous photograph taken some time after Michael Collins's death at the wedding of Gerardo Sullivan and Maud Kiernan and Kitty Kiernan Michael Collins's fiance sitting in the front row dressed in black so yeah. all this history is all is all tied up Irish prisoners died while in Frangok, although a number of them did the following year after they had returned home. Their deaths were due to the unhealthy regime they had encountered while in prison. However, there was one death that would have saddened the Irish while there. That was the prison doctor, Dr. Peters, a good, honest and conscientious man who took his own life at the age of 50. Now, one of the um, conflicts that arose between the prison authorities and the prisoners was during that time, World War I was underway, of course, and among the 1,800 Irish prisoners in Frangok, some of them had lived in Britain uh, before, and they were known, they're sometimes known as the refugees. So the, the British authorities reckoned some of these prisoners were liable to be conscripted into the British Army. So they, they tried to find out who these prisoners were within the 1,800s. And, of course, the prisoners discovered what was up, and they refused to give the, the prison authorities their names. So during that time a lot of the prisoners had terrible lung complaints because there would be 250 prisoners kept kept inside in this grain loft in very stuffy conditions and the doctor then was brought along to help these men uh, but he was ordered by the prison authorities that if a prisoner wouldn't give their name well then the doctor wasn't to treat them. Mm -hmm. So that doctor had taken a note, the Hippocratic Oath, to look after sick people and the fact he couldn't treat these very sick men got to him. And in the end, he got depressed. And in December of 1916, he actually jumped off a local bridge, Dr. Peters, and uh, was drowned in the Trewellen River, yeah. which was, was, was quite, quite sad. He was only 50. That's right. Yeah. And uh, when we were going over last year to Frangok, we, we phoned uh, in advance um, some of the locals there, and, and we asked them, did they know where Dr. Peters was buried? And initially, they actually didn't. But they discovered uh, that he was buried, in fact, in the local graveyard. And they had, there was a tree actually growing over his grave, so they had to cut away the branches. And while we were over there, we laid a reed on his grave. Just He was a good man, and he got caught in bad circumstances at the time. But he was the only fatality while, while the Irish prisoners were there, uh, Dr. Peters. Peters, who, who was a local man. You had a guy then who was known as Johnny the, uh, Johnny the Dentist. That's right. Now, while we were over there before Christmas last year, we were staying in the hotel in Bell at the local town, and there was a local soccer team were having their Christmas dinner, and we were walking through the middle of the, the function room, and uh, uh, one of the local men pulled one of our people aside, and he said, are you over from Cork? Um, I heard you were over from Cork to visit the campsite, and uh, our man said, we, we are, yeah. Well, he said, as a matter of interest, he said, about 20 years ago, I was working for a local radio station, and I 
interviewed a man who was quite elderly back then. He was he was known as um, Robert Roberts, uh, known as, as Johnny the Dentist uh, by the locals. He'd been a 12-year-old um, boy uh, in 1916, and he was working in the camp in his spare time. And Michael Collins actually befriended him. And uh, this local boy used to bring in cigarettes and books and so on for Michael Collins uh, to give to the, the prisoners. And at one stage, Michael Collins gave a gift of a pendant with a, a green stone on it to this young boy. And Collins told him that Michael's mother had sent the gift over from uh, Ireland, especially for the young lad. And the only thing was that Michael's mother had died nine years before. Mm-hmm. So obviously he was, uh, that, that was one example of a Collins uh, used local context. That's right. When the men were eventually released at Christmas of 1916, there was celebration and jubilation when they returned home. Not surprisingly, the return of Michael Collins was a bit more exuberant than most. Tim Crowley quotes from Frank O'Connor's book, The Big Fellow. Collins exploded into freedom in Dublin on Christmas morning with Gerardo Sullivan. They went to see Joe O'Reilly, another Stafford and Franga graduate, who, like Collins, was a corkman, but a far gentler one. The pair burst through the door of the room O'Reilly was sharing with a friend, extracted a piece of ear that left both his ears bleeding, pinched and savaged him, poured what they could of a bottle of port down his throat and left O'Reilly to explain through his traumatised roommate that it was only Collins having a bit of fun. Collins continued to roister around Dublin all that day until uh, the evening when he was lifted onto a sidecar and drunk as a lord, bundled by his friends, into the cock train. So there was great celebration, great welcome given to these prisoners when they arrived back. And what about your, your grandfather and your granduncle? Well, there's a piece from the Skibbereen Eagle uh, how he, they were, when they arrived home, and they were they were early, they were July of 1916, that they got a big welcome uh, as well. And and of course, that has to be shown in, in, in contrast to what happened when they were taken away in, in May. Uh, when, when the prisoners who were involved in the fighting in Dublin in 1916 were being uh, marched through the streets to head off to England to prison, they were being jeered and booed by the by the people of Dublin, and eggs and fruit being thrown at them. And then when th- these men were the last of the prisoners were released at Christmas 1916, and when they arrived back into Dublin, they were heroes. And mm-hmm. So the whole thing had turned on its head because of the executions and, and all of that. Of the 1,800 prisoners in Frangoch, the British were unsure as to how many of them were up to no good or were heavily involved in the Easter Rising. And so they set up a commission headed by a Judge Sankey, Hence, the Sankey Commission. The purpose of this 10 or 12 member commission was to interview the prisoners to determine who should remain in Frangok and who should be sent home. Again, a strange decision was made. Instead of the commission travelling to Frangok in Wales to interview the prisoners, they brought the 1,800 prisoners to London, a decision that beggars belief. Well, I suppose the British uh, authorities in Frangok didn't really know who they had among the 1,800 prisoners. Were they all heavily involved in the fight in 1916 or were some of them not involved at all? So uh, to find out who they were dealing with, they brought the uh, 1,800 prisoners at various stages uh, from um, Frangok down to, to London. Uh, and instead of bringing the, the, the judge, uh, Judge Sankey, who was the head of the commission, uh, and the other members of the commission up to Frangok, which would have been maybe a dozen people, instead of that, they brought the 1,800 prisoners down to London instead, which doesn't which make 
strange to say the least. Very strange. Yeah. And while the um, while the prisoners were down in the prisons in in London, uh, Wormwood Scrubs and so on, uh, they saw the the normal prisoners and they couldn't get over the grey faces and and uh, you know the the um, the people who were in prison for long for many many years. And then some of the Frangok men wrote about that in letters afterwards. But anyway, basically what happened, they were brought into uh, in front of this little uh, group of, of people inside in a room, each of the Frangok men, and questioned. And then they the commission then decided, well, this man looks as if he had nothing to do with the fighting or anything like that, and he he was would be, was released. And then the likes of Michael Collins and so on, who they reckoned were up to their neck in the whole thing, well, they were sent back to Frangok. So that so basically, of the men who were going to be released, then they were released in alphabetical order. Uh, so my um, grandfather Tim Crowley and his brother being Crowley C were, were released after about a month uh, if you were further down the alphabet well you would have stayed in Frangok for a bit longer yeah. so, that, so that's how, how it worked now the one would wonder are the files of the Sankey Commission existing somewhere because when each man came into that room they obviously had information about the uh, the men uh, it would be great to get our hands on that but from my knowledge the, the, we don't know where they are at the moment anyway and you had an Irish representative on that commission as well had you? Well there was a George Gavin Duffy um, was actually um, defending the um, prisoners interests for the Sankey Commission and of course he would later sign the treaty with, with Michael Collins and uh, on the Irish side he at that time in 1916 was defending Roger Casement in his trial and of course Roger Casement was found guilty of treason and he was hanged um, in August 1916 in London as a traitor he was the last of the 1916 leaders to be executed So, what became of some of these men afterwards? But before we do that, let's clear up a myth regarding Eamon de Valera as to whether he was or was not in Frangok. Eamon de Valera was not in, in Frangok. He was kept in, a, in another prison. And of course, he was actually held in, in jail in England until the middle of the following year. Um, the, all the Frangok prisoners, the last of them, were released at Christmas 1916. Eamon de Valera was released from prison in England in June of 1917. Yeah, so overall they wouldn't have spent... A lot of time there. Anything from one month to six? To six months, yeah. 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 But uh, it made... All you have to do is look at the people who were in Frangok and the role they played in subsequent events. And that was that was huge. What became of them afterwards? Well, I suppose just to give an example uh, of, of what became of some of the men or some examples, there was 30 of the former uh, Frangok men became TDs. There was eight of them uh, became members of the IRA headquarters staff during the War of Independence in Dublin. And uh, out of a total... Uh, total of, of 13 in that headquarters staff, eight of them had come had been in Frangok. Uh, during the Civil War, 20 Free State Army officers were, were in Frangok. Now, Michael Staines and Paddy Brennan were the first commissioner and assistant commissioner of the Gardaí. Now, they didn't survive in those jobs for too long. And then, of course, the second president of Ireland was Sean T. O'Kelly, and he was also held in Frangok as well. In the final programme, Inspiration from the Past, next week at 7. It's difficult to refer to anybody who was sent to the Nazi concentration camp Bergen-Belsen as being lucky. So how did a nine-year-old boy survive the gas chambers, disease, hunger, severe weather conditions and cruelty? Well, he did it with the help of three powerful, courageous and spirited women, his mother, his grandmother and his aunt. 
hear him tell a story on where the road takes me on Sunday evening next at 7. But in the meantime, my thanks to Graham Martell on sound and you for sharing time with us this evening. From myself, John Green, do have an enjoyable, but above all, a safe and healthy week. Goodbye for now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.